Hello everyone and welcome back. So today we have Matt Stampa um, on the show and Matt concludes effectively the series and the small CISO desk reference guide series. We're going to discuss about the book uh, with him and um, it's a collaboration book also Gary participated and uh, it's the main author Gary actually. I have to say that it's been an honor to talk with this super inspirational people, Gary, Matt, Alan, and it really gives a perception of a CISO from a wartime series and a peacetime series and what, a, what true leader are made of. So it's an honor and thank you everybody for being here. Oh, by the way, we just reached 2000 downloads in the last month. So I'd like to thank everybody for participating, for downloading. Download more and more and more and uh, follow us, subscribe to the email list. And most important of all, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, where we hear the stories of information security professionals. This podcast explores different angles, out-of-the-box ideas, and the human element of cybersecurity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP so we can continue to bring on amazing guests. You can watch videos of the interviews at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. Today, we have a very early start for our guest. So special, special thanks for, for him to come in. He joined us from the other side of the world, almost, <laughs> from the US side of the world. So special, special thanks to Matt Stompa, that is a former Gartner analyst. He's based in San Diego, so it's, it's really hot for him. <laughs> But that's why we did the, the early start. And it's also a very, a very uh, for, for, for who is in this industry uh, and who is in cybersecurity, you probably have heard about the CISO Desk Reference Guide. And he's one of the author. And very nicely, when I was based in LA, when I was in LA, he, he managed to maybe have one of the signed copy despite COVID and despite everything that is happening. So a super massive thank and a warm welcome to Matt Stopper on the show. Thank you very much, Matt. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic and my pleasure. I, I remember we were going to try to get together in person and then all of a sudden COVID-19 happened. So we ended up having to uh, get the book signed and then uh, mailed up there to you. But I'm glad they got through. That's great. Hope that you're is doing well. That is absolutely amazing. And can you tell our audience where, where you're at at this point in time, uh, what you've been doing, how you've been busy this time? Yeah, I got to tell you, with COVID-19, we've seen no interruption in, in demand on cybersecurity. It's uh, probably one of the busiest times that I've ever gone through professionally. It's it's very, very busy. I'm a, uh, a CISO and executive advisor at Evotech and help a number of different organizations in building out incident response programs, doing tabletop exercises, evaluations of, of security programs. But uh just absolutely crazy busy these days, inordinately busy, and across all areas. I'm seeing this with all my colleagues in, in different CISOs throughout the country, CISOs in Mexico and Latin America that are still really close friends of mine. 
everyone that I know is in, that is in security is just as busy as they have ever been. So I think our labor shortage and the demand for uh, cybersecurity talent hasn't abated in any way, shape or form. Yeah, no, I, I can totally agree. And I'm happy on one end that you, you're super busy because we, we've seen uh, quite a massive talent cut in the industry. Uh, I think it was probably recently that we've seen Mozilla cutting completely their own security team. So we're seeing scary stories and we, we keep on seeing breaches over breaches and ransomware yeah. over ransomware. So the attacker are getting more clever and stimulated by COVID because there is lack of resources. So maybe in all this doom and gloom, you can give uh, your overview on the on the industry and where you see probably the shift with COVID and where you see the industry is at the moment. What do you think? Yeah, I think COVID has highlighted uh, a number of elements. It has certainly highlighted the people element of cybersecurity, that we are very susceptible in the way we interact with technology. We can be very easily uh, socially engineered to do things that are not secure. We, we tend to have a, a higher proclivity to trying to help people even when we're trying to help somebody that ultimately ends up being an adversary. Hey, would you help me and take a look at this website and someone clicks or, you know, hey, real quick, can you read this email and somebody opens up an email. So I think fundamentally how we look at at designing our, our applications, our infrastructure in our interactions with technology, we really need to put the human element front and center and think about what type of security controls can be embedded into technology but where it isn't onerous on the individual, where he or she is just interacting with mm-hmm. their applications, their tools, whatever it is that they're using, not knowing behind the scenes all the security controls that are in place to kind of prevent things, uh, negative things from occurring. And, and I think we're seeing that. I think I'm, I'm actually like you, very optimistic about the state of security. I think our, our applications and tooling are getting better. We have to because the adversaries are extraordinarily well-tooled. They're uh, exceptionally smart in the way they look at at attacking infrastructure. They've got a long-term view. And, and accordingly, we have to think about our security programs and our security architectures with the same long-term view. But if we focus in on it and do it correctly, we should be in good shape. Mm-hmm. No, I, I absolutely agree. And an attacker are getting even more motivated because of the lack of talent and the, that was already there, the, the shortage of talent. And right now, with resources being scarce, unfortunately, we see security team getting less and more and more depleted and the work being double and double. So I think we were discussing before before we started recording that we're super massive busy. And yeah. COVID has cranked up uh, that busyness. So from a practitioner perspective right now, all the, all the security practitioners are fundamentally focusing on, you know, keeping the, the wheel running and not doing any innovation. Would you take an extreme approach and do a lot of innovation project right now from an executive perspective, or would you keep the wheel running? What would be your stand on? I think we don't have the luxury of not doing both. If we don't keep our eye out on where we need to direct our security programs and our security architecture in the future, that will never happen. So we have to allocate resources, whether it's time, whether it's staffing, tooling, budget, et cetera. We have to be thinking about these things, but but we also have an obligation 
to make sure that how we manage the day-to-day, -day, how we keep the proverbial lights on, that that is being uh, handled and addressed appropriately. So I think as a CISO, our job is to fundamentally focus both on kind of the tactical elements of our security programs and our security architecture and make sure that our teams are doing the, the appropriate work that they need to do but also making sure that we're building in future resiliency to our applications and our infrastructure and supporting the, the organization's broader business objectives. At least at a CISO role, if you're not looking at both kind of short-term and longer-term areas, you're going to get hit. You'll either get hit by a breach because you weren't paying attention to mm -hmm. tactical detail, or you're going to become obsolete because your technology and your infrastructure hasn't morphed into something a little bit more resilient over time. No, I agree. And would you consider, though, that CISO right now are very much stressed? Because, I mean, there is the whole topic of burnout. I think during COVID has been even more stressed. And uh, do you consider there's been more of attention on the uh, SOC, on the operational, the incident response, and specifically because we were not prepared uh, in any kind of business continuity plan or resiliency plan in a disaster like this? So yeah. uh, organization that went completely virtual overnight and with the perimeter effectively instead of the uh, uh, proverbial castle and uh, the moat around the castle with the crocodile uh, being completely distributed. So a lot of mini castles that are probably not very <laughs> <laughs> secure. <laughs> mini castles with a lot of little kids walking through that aren't at school and, and uh, you know, members of the family kind of walking into the work environment. Yeah, I, th I think without a shadow of a doubt, the, the COVID-19 environment has fundamentally changed how we look at our security environment, where we had things kind of proverbially controlled within our four walls. Now we're uh, extraordinarily distributed organizations with, you know, the majority of the staff working from anywhere, working from home. We have to really think about identities. We have to think about permissions, level of access based on role, based on location, based on temporal considerations, time of day, all of those things. I think at the end of the day, how we manage access and credentials and what level of permissions are associated with different workloads based on roles has never been more important. In, mm -hmm. And so I think our, uh, our teams that are focused in on identity and access management have probably been some of the, the busiest teams within security uh, across the globe. They're, they're working overtime. And when we finally get through these things, God willing, we need to really celebrate the individuals that have kind of done this Herculean effort of, of trying to protect our organizations. And, and as you noted, just a literally overnight, here's 10,000 employees. And by the way, they're all going to work from home. You think yeah. about the bandwidth and everything else that goes into that. If we can weather this storm, I think we're, we're in good shape coming out of this. No, I agree. And a lot of organizations do have, have implemented tactical, uh, if you want, organic, well, plans. And some of those tactical plans have led to maybe not data breaches, but ransomware. We've seen uh, a raise in ransomware here and there. We saw Garmin was the latest one. Then we had TravelX that uh, I think was the, almost defaulted. So 
how much a ransomware can actually damage. And I think right now it's uh, between social engineering and ransomware is the top topic at any kind of executive agenda. And the CISO is what you're going to do about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, and you, you bring it up perfectly because effectively it's two sides of the same coin. Ransomware doesn't happen, generally speaking, without social engineering. There's a phishing email or more, more likely a very well-crafted contextualized spear phishing message because some of us, uh, so many of us have very, very public profiles, whether we're in human resources or a senior executive at an organization or in operations or any Even other security. place within the company. Yeah, including security system administration. We're, we're social animals. We have profiles on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. It doesn't take a whole lot of time to get a, a good understanding of what an individual is interested in and draft a message and send it off that looks, you know, absolutely legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once that message has gotten through and, and they're generally very well crafted, it doesn't take a lot for that ransomware to start. So it, it really emphasizes how well we've architected our organizations to preclude ransomware. Are we keeping things appropriately patched? Do we have good network segmentation? Do we have good early uh, warning systems from an incident response perspective to kind of attack ransomware early before it can really do some of the damage and do some of the fast propagating challenges that we've seen with certain cases? No, I like I like your approach on uh, how you were explaining it as effectively layers of defense and defense effectively in depth without uh, nominating another of, of our favorite podcasts. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's I think it's it's rightfully saying that a defense in depth approach and maybe. I would say I will add in multi-factor to <laughs> the majority of the account probably yeah. is a safer, even though we were discussing with Gary that even with multi-factor in, once the attacker is in, is authenticated with your machine and it's game over. So it's, yep. as you just said, several layers of defense. If one falls over, maybe the other one will, will stand forth. Or if everything falls over, at least you have a rapid incident response to recover an attack. But yeah. Maybe a, a little bit of a question as, a, as an executive. So because the board is continuously asking, what about ransomware? What about ransomware? What about business continuity? Uh, aren't we losing focus and traction on all the other aspects of cybersecurity because we are effectively firefighting a specific emergency and we're letting, oh, well, everybody go into production with a website that they may be not secure or we're opening up new doors because we absolutely focus on the human aspect and adjust the ransomware. Sorry, I'm, I'm challenging you as a practitioner and say, well, how about this? <laughs> exactly. No, I, I think, you know, we tend to get very excited about the latest shiny object in our profession. And, mm-hmm. and clearly right now, ransomware has got everyone's attention. Ransomware is very distinct from insider threat. It's very distinct from nation state, although they certainly use ransomware tools to to do some of the work, notably the North Koreans. Mm -hmm. I I think fundamentally as a CISO, when I communicate to boards of directors, you have to look at it in terms of broader enterprise risk to the organization. What are the financial risks to my company? What are the operational risks, the reputational or regulatory risk, or even frankly in certain industries, what are the safety risks that we face? We, We are actually in an industry where our failure to lock things down in certain industry segments with operational technology could result in a loss of life or injury. 
um, we have to be very cognizant of that. So I think the burden on the CISO role in the teams that she or he oversee have never been higher. At the end of the day, we're probably in one of those areas where there's existential risk to a company if we don't manage things and oversee and, and kind of lead our organizations appropriately. So I think we have an obligation when commuting to, communicating to the boards of directors to give a holistic, all of enterprise view of the different types of risk, phishing and spear phishing being one, ransomware being another, certainly just financial fraud, mm -hmm. you know, business email compromise, all the wire fraud that you see taking place, you know, hey, we forgot to pay this invoice. Can you send it over to us right away? I need to get it done or we're going to buy a company. Don't tell anyone yet, but just get, you know, a couple hundred thousand wired over here and we'll get the transaction done. This stuff happens on a daily basis, let alone, you know, rogue employees stealing intellectual property, customer lists, all these different things that, that can occur. We have to be cognizant of all of that mm -hmm. and, and help us kind of put together a plan that allows the organization to understand these risks in a financially responsible manner, address these appropriately. So I think there's there's a lot of dynamics there in, in how we, as, as CISOs, communicate risk to the boards of directors, to our colleagues, our CFOs, CEOs, um, VPs of HR, all the different individuals with whom we interact. We have to fundamentally take an enterprise risk view and translate digital risk, you know, kind of the infrastructure risk into something that higher level executives can understand correctly. I agree. So the communication is is totally, but I'll, circ I'll still circle back to the fact that <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe maybe we're too much focus on, on uh, right now specific business risk. And maybe it's because as a CISOs, we face with making the board happy and, and keeping the wheels running. So how would you suggest to a CISO to challenge a board saying that's really important, but we should focus also on this. What would be the, your top three advice to any kind of executive to kind of steer the discussion, not away, but saying it's really important, but in the grand scheme of things, this is also important. How would you approach kind of these kind of challenges? Yeah, I, I think uh, that's a fantastic question. And I think there's there's a dynamic that takes place with many security leaders is we end up making risk decisions that fundamentally belong to the business. What level of risk is acceptable for the company is ultimately a business decision. It's not necessarily a line of business or a CISO decision. This is a very nuanced topic. But at the end of the day, an organization may say, we're going to accept a certain level of risk in how we design and present our applications, or we're going to accept a certain level of risk by entering a particular market or a particular industry segment, whatever the case may be. Our job is to minimize the risk to the best of our ability and present a fact pattern to the executive leadership team and the board. And effectively, you're my boss, you're the CEO. Here's what I can do with my resources, with my team, with the infrastructure and applications and architecture that I have at, at hand. But I want you to be aware, I cannot preclude certain types of risk from occurring. And in one of the ways, going back to why I'm kind of cautiously optimistic in our industry, when you look at tools like the MITRE attack framework, it's a very powerful tool because it can highlight Here's what we can see. Here's what we can stop. Here's what I feel fairly comfortable with. But by the way, 
I've got all these blind spots in my environment that I can't control. That presents risk. How do you as the CEO or how do you as the board of directors want to resource this or support it? I will tell you, I can't do this right now, or I can do that, but at a very limited level without additional resourcing. It's a risk decision that the board needs to make. Thank you very much, Matt. I, I really love the strategy view, the, the framework that you explored, and then saying this is the risk, is a complete risk approach, and presenting the fact and information to the board that ultimately is accountable to make a decision on, yes, we're going to roll with you, or no, we're not going to roll with you, and ultimately they're accountable. Hey, Francesco here. A very quick message from our sponsor, and then we return back. This podcast is brought to you by the generosity of NSC42 Limited, your cybersecurity partner. Cybersecurity is complex and different for every organization, and you need the best tailored service to make sure your customer's data is safe and sound so you can focus on what's important, focusing on your clients and bringing the best and safest experience. NSC42 Limited can help you during your cloud transformation, cybersecurity assessment for your compliance checklist on-premise and on the cloud. Want to know more? Visit www.nsc42.co.uk to get your free quote. But we've seen of recent, uh, I think it was published a few days ago, the CISO of Uber being mm-hmm. charged effectively with misconduct. So probably it wasn't only his decision. I would assume it wasn't the only person who was involved in that decision. But ultimately, is the CISO has a, a very short span in those kind of situations. So what would, you, what, what would be your advice uh, in, in those kind of situations where it's challenging to resign, to just saying where it's too dangerous or to stick to the organization? I know it's a very tricky question. So if you want... <laughs> You know, first and foremost, I don't know the specific details of Mm. what happened in that case, but I would say there's there's certain kind of ethical standards that any organization should live up to. I I have a colleague uh, here at Evotech, Matt Schufelt, that that always leads with transparency and integrity. It's part of kind of the the corporate values that we have here. And, And I think fundamentally, that's really critical. Am I working in a culture that wants open disclosure, wants transparency, wants to have kind of a rigorous interrogation of reality, or am I working in a culture where, you know what, I don't want to be made aware of this. I remember many, many years ago, uh, back in a in a different environment, where I was doing a lot of vulnerability management and for, for a variety of different organizations in the service provider role. Mm-hmm. And I remember speaking to a CIO at a hospital, and I said, you know, listen, why don't you let us kind of do a bit of a vulnerability analysis of your environment as a way to kind of show you what our team is capable of doing? And his response back was, I appreciate that, but if you tell me about it, now I know about it. And, and, and there are a number of companies that don't want to be uh, aware of the fact pattern. And, and I think as a CISO, there's really a couple of ways to look at this. And I'll just be very blunt. I've always had the uh, perspective in my, in my career that I will tell people exactly what I see Um, I will give it to them unfiltered. In other words, if the current environment is not correct, 
I will let you know. If we're not doing things that we need to from a regulatory basis, from a contractual basis, from a best practice basis, I will let the executive leadership team know without any filter. You know, here's what Probably it is. It smells bad. Yeah, <laughs> it <exactly>. is rotting. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and unfortunately, it's, it's, there's an element of this is going in and telling somebody they've got a really ugly baby. Yes. You know, this is, this is not a good looking scene right now. And, and there's two responses from executive leadership teams. And, and I've been in environments where I've seen both. The, the fortunate thing is the vast majority of them um, have been positive where, thank you, okay, how do we fix this? What do we need to do? No, they still need to fix it within available resources, other competing priorities, et cetera. But there's no running away from the truth. I think for CISOs, if they're in an environment where it's kind of a poisoned well culture, don't bring this stuff to my attention. Mm. How dare you tell the board this stuff? Why in the world are you presenting this risk to other, other folks in the staff? If you've got a culture like that, I think almost at the end of the day, you're going to end up leaving or when something does happen because those risks aren't happening or being managed correctly, the CISO is kind of a scapegoat. They get fired very True. easily uh, by other members of the executive team simply because they didn't want to deal with it. I think the fortunate thing, though, is that within our industry, the demand for quality talent, whether it's at the practitioner level, the individuals working in our security operations centers, the analysts and the engineers and security architects, um, or executive leadership. There's such a demand for our skill set in the marketplace right now that we don't necessarily have to work with the company with the bad culture. Correct. Uh, there may be exceptions to the rule, but my view is, is if I communicate this stuff to the executive leadership team and they want to wipe it underneath the carpet, I'll probably uh, move on in very, very short order. Um, so stick with your own environment that's that's positive. I'd rather be in an organization that is judiciously, prudently dealing with risk, but not trying to deny or obviate that risk exists. Yeah, and I agree with you. I stick with your value, and if the organization doesn't resonate with your value, move on. And we have such an offering, especially during COVID, there is even more offering in place, especially yeah. in the US. You don't have an excuse. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, circling back, because uh, I think it's, it's a topic of, of recent ransomware and social engineering, and that circle back probably quite nicely with also the, the, the privacy aspect, because as you mentioned before, we everybody has a social media presence or everybody has a presence on the internet, so it's, it's probably really traceable. And I know, I know you're writing something right now of recent uh, about the privacy aspect, but how, how would you see the privacy aspect unite with the social engineering? Because I think they're, they're very close, but I want to hear your opinion. It, it, it's one of the most fascinating topics. There's a, uh, a number of authors that are kind of focusing in on generational aspects of privacy, mm-hmm. Cases in point, if you're at my age, you look at privacy a little bit different than somebody that's in their teenage years. True. You know, they share information ubiquitously. They, you know, they're, they're very open in their social media accounts, whereas certain individuals may be a little bit more reserved. Mm-hmm. So I think we have those generational aspects. I think we have fundamentally very distinct views of privacy, for better or worse, between the European Union and the United States. The U.S., we look at it very, uh, very much from a sector perspective. Here's my financial data 
that's controlled by Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act and, and other regulations like New York State cybersecurity law. Here's my protected health information that's controlled by HIPAA, the Health Insurance mm-hmm. Portability and Accountability Act with a high-tech addition to that. And somewhat less specific at a state level, whereas I think in Europe, very clearly, privacy is a right. Privacy is foundational. And the data subject is defined by Article 4 of the GDPR. The data subject controls how their personal information is used. And and you look at it in two very simple ways, opt-in and opt-out. In the U.S., the burden grossly, grossly exaggerated. The U.S., uh, the burden is on the consumer to opt out. You know, I'm going to collect your information and tell you until you tell me not to. And the European Union and the U.K., just recently kind of exiting from, from the environment, but still fundamentally, I think, aligned. We wrote in, in the legislation before we came out, so it's been in yeah. all effect, and we had the... Uh, the legislation in fact you ratified the gdpr and the, exactly. the, the privacy law so we're good to go <laughs> it's consistent exactly <laughs> right. exactly is the consistency but in, in, i think in the european union clearly the notion is you cannot collect my information until i have explicitly consented to that collection mm-hmm. and in what we've seen for example with the recent invalidation of privacy shield data flows for countries like the United States that don't benefit from an adequacy decision are inordinately challenged. You've got to either have binding corporate rules for intra-organization data transfers or personal data transfers or standard contractual clauses that are fundamentally unalterable in in terms of their approach. And, And so I think we have really interesting dynamics around how organizations, how countries, how economic blocks look at privacy as a CISO when we think about what type of information does my organization collect and process. I have to look at my colleagues within privacy, the data protection officer or the chief privacy officer, as as really important colleagues in this this discussion. We have to be lockstep aligned to how do we protect the information? How do we manage the workflows related to it? And, And so I think privacy and security, they're very distinct disciplines and domains. But, but the level of interaction and overlap between the two is, is absolutely foundational, an area that, that needs to be explored. I, I, that was probably a longer... No, no, I, I agree. I agree. I, I absolutely agree because they're fundamentally two different strategies to address the same problem, that is protection of clients' data from uh, attacker or from unwanted disclosure or unwanted use. So yeah. I, I like your idea that uh, you have two heads that form one single piece of the strategy and they need to work in conjunction because that's for the benefit of the organization. But exactly. I think fundamentally you have, even before GDPR, the, the Europe has always been more traditional and more prude in terms of disclosing information about their customer, while the US has been on the forum foot and very aggressive on the marketing strategy, on the uh, digital marketing strategy, the sales strategy. So that has led into the monetization of a lot of this information, while in uh, Europe has always been very, very frowned upon. So that has, has led more or less the difference in approach, I think. But the California protection law has taken a step, a very strong step forward towards effectively aligning GDPR. And I think New York has is starting considering that approach and, and becoming effectively a, a protection 
nationwide for the US, even though I always doubt a little bit about an appro- a nationwide approach about some, some regulation in the US. <laughs> yeah. We see yeah, president- I can guarantee if, if we did do something at a national level, it would be inordinately influenced by big industry and in some of the larger social media sites. When you have Citizens United that effectively allow corporations to have the same political voice as individuals, the individual is effectively just overmatched. There's such an asymmetry there in terms of resources. And it doesn't matter if you're on the left side or the right side, progressive, conservative. Either way, large corporations fundamentally can throw more resources at a particular issue than individuals that have a really challenging collective action problem. And, And so I think if we ultimately end up having a national privacy law it will look very distinct from what we see with the general data protection regulation, Mm -hmm. the GDPR out of Europe. It will be more industry focused likely than it would be consumer focused, which is certainly what we see with respect to the GDPR. Yeah, I'll be be really interested to see the evolution of the US privacy law because I think it's in, in evolution right now and will be in evolution and we'll open new market segment or we'll close some existing market segment because there is yeah. a lot of people. I've been probably stumbling around recently the debate between uh, B2B email distribution and B2C email distribution, yeah. where if you're a consumer, you're not allowed to touch that email. But as soon as you call the business, then that email becomes of public. Everybody can, as long as they find it somewhere, they can sell it and yeah. they can include in the database. And I, I always thought that's, that shouldn't be right. You know, there's one one topic I'd like to bring up that I think just it, it's spurred by this privacy discussion. When we start thinking about compliance with the GDPR, compliance with the CCPA, following a particular privacy standard or regulation, we're going to fundamentally create a really interesting asymmetry in the marketplace. Let's say tomorrow you and I go out and we're going to build a new company. We've got this Mm -hmm. great idea and we think we can launch it, but we're small. You know, it might be you and I, a handful of developers, et cetera. And then all of a sudden we need to have a SOC 2 audit. We need to comply with X, Y, and Z regulation. The barrier to entry for smaller, earlier stage companies because of privacy and security regulations is inordinately high. And and one of my fears is, or actually have a a variety of things that are of concerning. First and foremost, these smaller organizations need this. They need good security. They need good privacy. They need good documentation around both of those areas. But it's costly. Mm -hmm. And if we don't allow smaller companies to find a way to be innovative and drive growth, that's what really fundamentally drives the economy. We're going to see just nothing but larger and larger and large corporations that don't really care necessarily as much about the innovation as a smaller company might be. Or they may be small, they may be slower to react to to different market signals where smaller companies can. I don't know how we're going to solve that yet, but it's something that we talking about it was it was really interesting because i was talking with this with few accelerator or vc founding organization and i said what are you doing about security so right now in not in the seed round but in the in the more vc structure round they start looking at compliance and security and they start questioning it so they are putting the founding in if they said if you're operating in this market then probably you need to look at this regulation uh, but maybe we should uh, with the gdpr there will be a lot of cash flowing in into one single 
thought maybe we could pitch in for an initiative of, you know, pull a, a list of resources that's going to help startup that are below 1 million uh, revenue turnarounds you help them getting up to speed with regulation because yeah. recent actually was helping an organization completely for free saying, well, one of our clients has asked uh, for OWASP compliancy. And I said, there isn't such a certification. There is this, this and that. You know, a small organization are getting challenged from everything and they, they, they don't have the expertise because as a former, uh, as a startup and myself, we totally focus on the technology and on yeah. fulfilling the customer. So sometimes we lose track of regulation, what is needed, and some organization might ask X, Y, Z, and is a cost perspective. So we say, you know, we don't attack the US market. Interesting mm-hmm. enough, when the California protection law came about, uh, a lot of newspaper and organizations say, if you're coming from Europe, sorry, we can't do business with you. They didn't want to take the burden. They didn't want to take the yeah. burden and say, if you're coming from this range of IP address, bye-bye. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it is uh, absolutely fascinating. I mean, we're, we're blessed to live in an extremely interesting times. <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, definitely, definitely extreme and interest is the right word for this period of time. Exactly. Maybe circling back on the social engineering, uh, we were discussing with Joe Gray in a few episodes back about the difference, uh, especially for social engineering, of how much wealth of information they have available in the US. Mm-hmm. Company information, uh, where do you live, uh, is all public and is all indexed yeah. and is freely available for open source intelligence network. Well, in, in Europe, it's much more locked down. Well, finding those information is, is much harder. There is different techniques, but is, it was an interesting view about saying how difficult or easy was the approach in US versus Europe for social engineers. No, it's, it's interesting. I have a friend of mine that works in law enforcement, and there's a, a term that's used called doxing, where you publicly mm-hmm. expose where an individual lives, things of that nature. And, you know, he's genuinely concerned about his privacy. And I went out and got him a copy of uh, Michael Bazell's book, Extreme Privacy, Mm -hmm. which, you know, thinks about how do you start to remove that proverbial digital footprint that you have. And the challenge is, is that so much of what we put out there from a digital perspective, once it's out there, it's out there. And and I think you're, you're absolutely right. Again, in, in the U.S., grossly exaggerating again, I think consumer data is very much a monetizable resource. And so you try to figure out, okay, well, how much data do I have? How can I use it? Where can I sell it? It, it is very distinct from how other regions look at this. And, and so I think consumers are, are really challenged. I remember I was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal for a uh, a thing when the, the House of Representatives or the Senate came out basically saying that the clickstream data of individuals could be sold. And, and I remember stating if, if my mom's privacy was predicated on her knowing how to use a VPN, then privacy is dead. And, and realistically, it's true. You know, you look at individuals where they use technologies not knowing that there's GPS coordinates in the pictures that they take or, you know, any number of different kind of data elements or, or breadcrumbs, if you will, are collected throughout this. It's, it's an inordinately challenging time to maintain an appropriate level of privacy, but still interact and engage with kind of our modern society. We're, we're really hamstrung on how we look at these issues. And I think we need to have a, a very open, 
honest, rigorous dialogue around how we maintain individual privacy, how individuals have rights over their information, but also benefiting from some of these really interesting technologies. I mean, GPS is saving lives every day. Somebody gets in an accident, their phone's next to them, they can get close to where they are and find them and help them, or somebody gets lost and otherwise, but it's also used negatively. You know, women that are victims of domestic violence are are frequently having their phones and other devices used against them. All the smart devices and webcams and houses are being compromised. I mean, you just look at at all the stuff you can find on Shodan and and everything. It's it's a fascinating time to 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 be thinking about these issues about, you know, functionality and efficiency of technology coupled with its security, coupled with its privacy. I agree. And also uh, the other campaign, uh, my my campaign in battle is to simplify in term condition because sometimes, especially for people at a certain age or even us uh, who who reads the full term, I've been reading a lot of term and condition because I was on contractual stuff uh, of late. But Uh who normally reads term and condition? No one does. It's too long. I accept. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And you could accept to sell all your data, your house, and your yeah. kids by accepting term of condition. It is effectively a contract, is a binding contract. So yeah. It's, it's challenging. So I think that's my positive message on try to simplify the term and condition to make it acceptable. But what would be your positive message to the industry? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think um, we, we do need an open dialogue on that. If, if I pivot more into, um, kind of the state of security and how we're looking at things. I'm actually very cautiously optimistic. I've been a huge fan of security orchestration, automation, and response as a category. Back when I was a gardener, I covered incident response, read mm-hmm. hundreds of incident response plans, talked to companies after breaches, trying to help them out, uh, a number of different things. And, and ultimately, what it ends up being is we should have seen something earlier. And I think the combination of the MITRE attack framework, which shows how infrastructure is exploited, some of the adversarial behavior down to specific TTPs, and here's the indicators of compromise for this type of attack. You can tune your infrastructure to look for these things proactively. It's kind of a combination of of automated red teaming, but integration. How do we fundamentally take inordinately manual processes and automate them so that when the network, or excuse me, when the adversary is kind of attacking at network speed, Mm -hmm. we're defending at network speed. And the analogy would be, we were talking about your flight over on a 747, you know, as you came back. Realistically, the pilot doesn't fly the plane all that often. He or she is is fundamentally, you know, kind of making sure everything's more or less all right. But automatic pilot is making millions of micro decisions all the time. Our security programs have to do the same. Our security architectures have to be far more automated. So I think the advent of SOAR tools and, and greater integration, API integration that's taking place below a user interface at network speed, responding to things in, in real time, gives me a lot of optimism. And as these tools become more efficient, higher fidelity, easier to use by a broader class of, of scenarios, I'm optimistic. I think if if we use these well, you know, most of the exploits that we see taking place are things that we've known about in the market, 
for years. You know, you've got certain vulnerabilities that are still being exploited, but that vulnerability was was captured and cataloged and, and communicated 24 months ago. And wow, sure. it's still being exploited. You know, that's that that shouldn't happen. And part of it is just simply because we have so much noise and very little signal, we have to change that dynamic so we know exactly what those signals are and respond accordingly. But the tool sets are starting to get better. And I think uh, uh, cautiously, we, we're heading in the right direction. Even though the 747 don't get continuous improvement and continuous deployment in no, production. Exactly. I, think of, I think of recent, uh, I've seen a post of people being completely outraged by the, the 747 being updated by floppy disk. And I said, I like that because it's really, really hard to get a virus in a floppy disk. People don't know anymore how to do that. The payload exactly. is enormous. And I like, I like technology that doesn't get updated so quickly because I'm pretty confident that has a lot of thought has gone through. So maybe my positive message is let's start thinking about a 747 enterprise that doesn't get updated so often. It goes against DevSecOps and DevOps, but sometimes that's good. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and just and just thinking about it, I remember uh, watching a documentary about the building and design of the 747. It is a marvelous piece of engineering, you know, multiple fail-safe systems. It is truly an example of what we need to do with our infrastructure. It needs to be designed for resiliency. You know, one of the great things that Dr. Vogels at, at Amazon Web Services or Amazon always says is design for failure. If you assume components are going to fail and have a fail-safe mechanism, kind of the proverbial guardrails, we should be doing that everywhere. You know, Article 25 of the GDPR talks about data, data protection by design and by default. We should take that mantra. How do we build stuff in early in the uh, process so that when things fail, we don't have these data breaches. We don't have these ransomware outbreaks. We have a small, easy-to-contain issue uh, that doesn't really impact our ability to deliver services in a secure fashion, maintain privacy per the uh, data subjects requirements. All that stuff should be built in. But it takes time. It takes, it takes time. time, ultimately. It takes commitment. It takes time and commitment, and 90% of the organization wants to go to market quite quickly. So start from the startup. Everything else from a startup is a scale-up, and they want to just make money quickly. And uh, cutting corner is the practice. So that's why exactly. I said you can't cut corner on a bridge or on a plane. That's why they <laughs> last 10 years. And maybe you, you fine tune it and tweak it in a continuous improvement, but the overall structure of the plane, the overall engineering effort, it's there. They spend yeah. a lot of time designing it. It's fail safe. They tried every single thing, tried model it, and it's solid. And I think we need more solid architecture, more plain and proper engineering architecture rather than a little bit is continuous improvement, continuous deployment. I think yeah. that, that's my positive and negative message at the same time. <laughs> but Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And I thank you so much, especially because it's super early for you. <laughs> not, not a problem In at all. US. Like all systems, I'm up 7 by 24. <laughs> <laughs> But okay, well, I, I do want to thank you, and, and, and I think podcasts like this are so important. You know, we have a, an amazing cybersecurity community, and I love the fact that we're seeing more diversity, although I'm the antithesis of kind of that diversity 
in our industry, but but I love it. I absolutely love that I've got CISO colleagues in, in Mexico City or in Europe or in various places in the US. I, I commend you on bringing together that community. I think these discussions and, and figuring out how we can share ideas and best practices, it was certainly one of the things that Gary Harryslip and, and Bill Bonney and I wanted to do at the CISO Desk mm-hmm. Reference Guide is how do we take our lessons learned throw it out into the community and benefit back as we have an open dialogue. So thank you so much for putting this together. And thank you for coming on the show and spending your time for the global knowledge. So thank you everybody for listening to Matt Stomper. It's been an absolute pleasure and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, consider leaving us a review or sponsoring us on Patreon. It helps us bring on amazing guests and keep the podcast alive and free. Consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP and watch other episodes at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.